Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. If you have uh, your copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 20. Um, after almost a year and a half in John's Gospel, um, we are coming to the end. We're going to be looking at these last two chapters over the next uh, three weeks. Um, as you're turning there, I want to tell you a quick story. Um, in the early morning hours of October 15th, 1912, the Titanic famously sank in the North Atlantic Ocean after striking an iceberg. Um, this, this certainly isn't news to you, um, but you may not know, as the ship was started taking on water, uh, the eight-member band assembled in the first-class lounge in an effort to keep the passenger spirits up. And then later they moved to the, to the boat deck, and they continued playing until they perished. And there, there's much speculation about what the final tune was that they played on this night. But several surviving passengers claim it was the 19th century hymn, Nearer My God to Thee. And if these stories are, are true, then these eight men, who were surrounded by, by chaos and calamity, spent the final moments of their lives on earth lifting up a final song of worship, to heaven. And that's a, a hauntingly beautiful picture. But at the risk of, of, of sounding overly dramatic, it's also a somewhat accurate parallel to preaching in 2020. Now listen, I understand this is, this is far from a perfect analogy, but at times this year, preaching the, the good news of the gospel has been a little bit more difficult because of the prevalent bad news surrounding us in the world. In our current context, the bad news overwhelms us. We see it on social media. We watch it on the 24-hour news cycle. We read about it in the paper, and we, we hear about it in conversations with others. We are bombarded and overwhelmed with bad news. And because of this onslaught of, of bad news, we can struggle at times in staving off discouragement. In fact, according to researchers, the average person has 30,000 thoughts per day. And roughly 70%, roughly 70% of those thoughts are negative. This is why Christian author Jenny Allen argues that the greatest battle of our generation is being fought between our ears. And yet we see in Scripture, in, in 2 Corinthians 10.5, the Apostle Paul writes, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And I don't know about you, but this seems like a tall order to me. We must take every thought captive. I mean, how do you even start to take every thought captive living in 2020? I mean, how do you avoid worrying about COVID? How do you avoid fear of the future? How do you avoid the, the stress of con the continuing fight surrounding the election? How do you avoid anxiety about your health, anxiety about your finances, and anxiety about your family, anxiety about your career, anxiety about any number of things? With the bad news stacking up around you, how do you avoid becoming discouraged? 
Well, in the simplest terms, you use the good news to offset the bad news. And this morning, as we as we look at the Gospel of John chapter 20, we find really good news. We find the tomb is empty. That's, that's the good news for us. Yes, the world is full of trouble, but the tomb is empty. And so before we jump into it, I just want to tell you where we're going to go over these next uh, three weeks. In these final two chapters of John's Gospel, we find several encounters between Jesus and his followers. And this week, next week, the next week, we're going to focus our attention on three conversations that Jesus has. Today, we'll learn how to fight against discouragement from Mary. Next week, we'll learn how to silence doubts from Thomas. And then on the final week, we'll learn how to overcome past failures from Peter. So if you are discouraged about any number of things in our fallen world, then you've come to the right place this morning. Because in our passage... Through Mary's example, we find four practical steps for getting out of the sinking sand and setting our feet back on the rock of the gospel. So let's start reading in verse 1. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. So first, when you're discouraged, recall your testimony. In other words, when you are discouraged about your present, stop and consider God's continued faithfulness in your past. When Lacey and I finally submitted to, to God's, God's plan for us in, in 2012, the year after we had been married, we loaded a U-Haul truck with all of our possessions and moved to Louisville, Kentucky for seminary, where we signed a, a one-year lease agreement on an apartment, where we spent most of our savings on tuition fees and moving expenses, and where we prepared to start that, that first semester of school. And looking back, this was a borderline insane decision, right? If we, would, if we would have sat down with a financial advisor and laid out our plans in front of him, we would have received some serious pushback for our choices because we didn't have jobs waiting for us. And we didn't have savings, I've told you before, most couples are, are a spender and a saver uh, joined together in Christ. We're just two spenders trying to, to figure it out. And we didn't come from family money. We had nothing to fall back on. But we felt this, this strong conviction that theological education was a necessary step for our journey. So we, we trusted the Lord to, to fill in the blanks along the way, and, and He did. And so we took this, this first step in faith, and God honored it. And then we took another, and another, and another. And, and over the last eight years, each one of those steps we've taken, we've seen God honor those two. And so any time that we're stepping into an uncertain present in ministry, we have the benefit on looking back to a certain past. Like here, Here's the simple point. If, if we can provide countless examples of God's faithfulness yesterday, why can't we trust God with today? Right? If you can look back over your spiritual journey and see countless points where God was faithful to you, why do you struggle with, with trusting Him today? Well, this is, I think, why Mary returned to the tomb. 
Her experiences with Christ in the past drove her back to him in the present. All of the the gospel accounts follow the same basic outline for the resurrection narrative. Matthew, Mark, and Luke include some other women that were were present with Mary Magdalene, but, but John focuses only on her. And so Mary is heading back to the tomb. And in some of those other gospel accounts, we we see that she's carrying some spices with her to continue preparing the body for burial. You may remember last week that that Joseph and and Nicodemus were preparing to bury Jesus and they were running out of time because the Sabbath was quickly approaching. You know, and according to Jewish law, you you couldn't deal with a, a dead body on the holy day. So when Mary and the others return to the tomb on Sunday morning, they are there to finish the work of preparing the body for burial. Now this is an important detail for us to know because it it shows us that Mary believed Christ was still dead. So in a sense, she's coming back to the tomb to, to, to pay her final respects to the man who changed her life forever. Now from a biblical standpoint, we don't know very much about Mary's backstory. The Gospels tell us that she had seven demons cast out of her body by Christ, that she was present at the crucifixion, she witnessed his burial, and she saw his resurrected body. That's it. Yet throughout church history, Mary's legacy has become muddled with with two additional narratives. The first narrative was, was born in the late 6th century by Pope Gregory, who claimed Mary was the unnamed immoral woman in Luke 7. In Luke 7, Christ encounters a, an unnamed immoral woman. And then at the start of Luke 8, we see Mary Magdalene mentioned for the first time. So Pope Gregory says these two women are the same person. And, and as his opinion reached the mainstream, the church started to view Mary as this, this woman with a sordid past of sexual immorality. And then the second and more troubling narrative started gaining traction at the end of the 19th century with the discovery of fragmented manuscripts known as the Gnostic Gospels. And and in these stories, we find these revelations that Mary may have been a close companion and possible love interest of Jesus. Now, of course, both of these narratives are not supported by biblical canon, And the only thing that we truly know of Mary is that she was possessed by demons. And we see this again in in Luke 8. And what's interesting about uh, Luke's account of of Mary in chapter 8 is that he mentions her demon possession very briefly. He writes, And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And then Luke just moves on to the next thing. Luke says, Mary had seven demons, and then, you know, here are some other women who were following Jesus at the time. Then what are you doing, Luke? You're just going to drop seven demons on us and just, and, just, and just move on. It's very frustrating. But, but we, don't, we don't know much about Mary's past. And, and her past may have been full of, of shameful, egregious sin, as, as Pope Gregory once Yes, I mean, we can't know for sure, but we can say with confidence that her previous life was dark. You know, we we couldn't speak from experience here, but we can imagine that living with seven demons inside your body is a dark, bleak 
depressing existence. And yet, she encountered the light of the world and everything changed. And so as Mary is is heading to the tomb, she was certainly broken and burdened over the death of her teacher, but she still went because she was also incredibly grateful for the mark that he left on her life. But then she shows up, and the stone is rolled away, and the body is missing. So she runs to get Peter and John. Verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, and the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now before we get to the second point, let's let's quickly address uh, John's position as the king of the humble brag. In these verses, John provides two strange notes. Uh, First, he describes himself in verse 2 as the one whom Jesus loved. And we've talked about this before, that, that this seems to be a very conceited way to describe yourself. I mean, imagine if you were meeting with a new small group for the first time, and you started with one of those, those icebreakers that no one enjoys. And you said, you know, tell us one interesting thing about yourself. I think every college class I ever took started with, tell us one interesting thing about yourself. And let's, let's say you're going around the room, and then a man that's sitting in the back corner says, well, I guess one interesting thing about me is that I'm the one whom Jesus loves. If you heard this, your eyes would probably roll out of the back of your head. Oh, oh, you're the one. You're the one who Jesus loves. Okay, good to know, brother. But again, John's not bragging. This is John saying, I, I am no one. I, I, I'm nothing. I'm, my only identity is in Christ who died for me. The only thing you need to know about me is that, that Christ loves me. That's the only valuable part of my existence. And then second, in verses 4 and 8, John seems to go out of his way to let us know he won a foot race with Peter. He beats him to the tomb. He says it twice. Here in the most crucial chapter of his gospel, recounting the most important moment in human history, John wants you to know, also Peter ate my dust. And the inclusion of this second detail is harder for us to explain. But, but we could argue that this showcases that special relationship between John and Peter. They were close friends. They were part of the inner circle. They were brothers in Christ. They were partners in crime. And I realize in our culture how much we overuse this term, partners in crime. But in Acts chapter 4, they were arrested together for preaching the gospel in 
the public square. They were literally partners in crime. So we don't really know what's going on there, but maybe John was seizing the opportunity to throw some shade at his older and slower friend, Peter. But here's the important point. Second, when you are discouraged, revisit your foundation of truth. Again, when Mary encountered the empty tomb, she didn't initially consider that Jesus was resurrected. Instead, she told Peter and John, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. And her assessment of the situation is particularly striking when we consider how often Jesus predicted his death and resurrection to his followers. In the Gospel of Mark, we especially see this. Chapter 8, Jesus told them, the Son of Man must be killed and after three days rise again. Chapter 9, the Son of Man, they will kill him and after three days he will rise. Chapter 10, the Son of Man, they will kill him. Three days later he will rise. Jesus' claims were so widely known that his enemies heard about them. In Matthew 27, we learn that even though they didn't believe he would rise from the dead, they stationed a guard at the tomb in case some of his followers tried to fake his resurrection. So if Christ's enemies had heard, Mary had surely heard, yet despite his predictions, when she came to the tomb and she saw the stone rolled away, she immediately reported to Peter and John, they have taken the body. She didn't even consider resurrection for a moment. She didn't say to herself, wait a minute, you know, didn't he say that he would rise again? I mean, didn't he say that they would kill him and he would overcome the grave? I mean, could that be what's happening here? This, this thought is not in her mind. She believes someone has removed the body. And if we can just stop here for a second, I think it's important to note that, that we can easily fall into the trap of, of pointing a finger at Mary and saying, how can you not see it? It is right in front of you. How can you not see it? And I would caution us to, to stop short of crowning ourselves as smarter or better or more observant than Mary because we wouldn't have done much better. You know, so we shouldn't be quick to say, surely I would have been able to solve such a simple puzzle. There are only two pieces. He said it, then he did it. But we need to be careful because we should understand that faith in Jesus doesn't come naturally to any of us. Because faith involves a supernatural intercession from God and a rational decision from us. God is in complete control and we're accountable for our choices. God is sovereign and we are responsible. In his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer, does an excellent job of describing the relationship between these two concepts. He wrote, Charles Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths together. He replied, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. Friends? Yes, friends. This is the point that we have to grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends and they work together. So Packer reminds us that God is not a puppet master who chooses our every move. 
And God is not a distant divine being who cares nothing about our affairs. God plays an active role in our salvation, and so do we. So in one sense, we can't produce saving faith in Jesus Christ based solely on our own ability. And we can't see the truth without help. We're born with this spiritual blindness to the gospel. And Mary is exhibit A. In the first two verses, we see the aftermath of the greatest act of redemption in human history. God has destroyed sin and death and overcome the grave. And this miraculous event was preceded by months of teaching from Jesus where he systematically laid out how it would go down and what it would mean. Yet here is Mary staring at a stone rolled away and a tomb that is empty and she's still saying, I can't see it. Because salvation is impossible apart from God. But in another sense, we can make a rational decision about gospel evidence. Salvation does require this this supernatural, miraculous, personal encounter with God, but it also requires walking through a logical interaction with the truth. We have a part to play too. God revealed himself to Jesus Christ, and we must repent of our sin and place our faith in the saving work of the cross. But before reaching the point of submission to Jesus' as Savior and Lord, we must first wrestle with the information presented in his word. This is what we see Peter and John doing. When Peter arrived at the tomb, he entered and he saw the grave clothes laying neatly in the tomb. Now we should note that the Greek word for saw in verse 6 means a little bit more. It means to think, to to ponder, to process. And so as Peter looks into the empty tomb, he's working through all all possible scenarios. Okay, maybe Jesus revived himself, but if he did, then why are the clothes not torn or or unraveled on the floor? Or maybe some of our, our allies have taken the body, but if they did, why... Why would they leave the grave clothes here? Why would they dishonor his body and and carry him away naked? Peter wouldn't put together all the pieces of the puzzle until the next chapter when he has breakfast with Jesus on the banks of the Sea of Tiberias. But he's evaluating the evidence. He's searching for answers. He doesn't understand, but he's working towards understanding. And then John, on the other hand, was convinced. Look at verse 7. Then the other disciple also went in, and he saw and believed. John looked at the exact same evidence, and he believed. At the end of, of the previous chapter, John mentions that Jesus was buried according to Jewish custom. This means that, that Christ and, and Nicodemus not Nicodemus, excuse me, Lazarus, Christ and Lazarus experienced the same burials, but with different resurrections. In chapter 11, when Christ called Lazarus out of the grave, he comes hopping and shuffling out of the grave in, with his grave clothes still on. You remember that Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. Someone has to help him get his grave clothes off. And then here in chapter 20, When Christ came out of the grave, he stood up 
He folded his grave clothes up neatly and walked away. And so we see that John believes in Christ after seeing these neatly folded linens. Now why is this? What's the significance of of these, these folded grave clothes? Well, think about it this way. Last week, when we had, I don't know, probably 36 hours of cold weather, Lacey went out into the garage and she grabbed the box that had some of our, our children's winter clothes. Now, at some point, winter will arrive in South Georgia and stay for a while, maybe. You know, we can't say for sure. And when it does, Lacey will fold up the summer clothes and she'll put them in storage because we'll be done with them. This is what Christ was doing with his grave clothes. He folded up his grave clothes because he was done with them. Lazarus was still wearing his because Lazarus would die again, but Christ will never die. And so as John looks into this this empty tomb and sees these folded grave clothes, he's reminded of the truth. He may have thought back to what Christ had already told them that the Son of Man will be killed, but after three days he will rise. John hadn't seen the resurrected Christ yet, but he already believed in him. But Mary wasn't there yet. Let's pick back up in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stood to, or she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to him, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away. Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So third, when you're discouraged, remember Christ is with you in the valley. Mary was weeping because her heart was filled with sorrow, but she kept looking for Jesus. Peter and John went back home in verse 10, but she kept looking for Jesus. She was struggling to connect the dots and figure out what was going on, but she kept looking for Jesus. And she found him, but at first she didn't realize it. Christ was standing right in front of her, but she didn't recognize him. She believed he was the gardener. And we could unpack several theories about why Mary doesn't recognize Jesus in this moment. But for our purposes, it's more important for us to see the remarkable grace of Jesus here, the remarkable patience of Jesus here, the remarkable mercy of Jesus here. He posed a couple questions to Mary. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? You know, when counselors are working with patients, they tend to ask a lot of questions. 
because they understand they can't simply offer specific instructions to tell them how to live their lives. So instead, they ask leading questions to allow them to verbally process their current state. And as they answer questions about their situation, they begin to recognize their errors and embrace the truth. This is exactly what Jesus was doing with Mary. So first he asks, why are you weeping? Why are you crying? Which was a gentle rebuke to Mary. Essentially telling her, why are you crying over an empty tomb? Didn't I tell you what would happen? Didn't I tell you that I would die and rise again? Why are you so discouraged? And then he asked, whom are you looking for? And this was the more penetrating question. This question moved to the heart of the issue. D.A. Carson says the second question was meant to widen her horizons and to help her recognize that as grand as her devotion to Christ was, her estimate of him was still far too small. See, Mary was deeply devoted to Jesus, but her faith was still weak. She couldn't see him standing right in front of her. And of course, Mary misinterprets Jesus' questions and she still thinks that he's the gardener and, and she just asks about the missing body. She says, Sir, if, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And then Jesus made a final effort to break through to Mary. He called her by name. In John 10, Christ says that he is the good shepherd who calls his own sheep by name. His sheep follow him because they know his voice, and we see it happen in this moment. He looks at her, and he says, Mary. And she immediately knows it's Jesus. He says, Mary, and she exclaimed, Rabboni, she's no longer blind to the truth. Mary came to that tomb looking for the wrong Jesus. She was looking for a dead man, but he was alive. And he found her, he opened her heart, and he called her by name. Her faith came by grace. She did not earn it. And it's also really interesting here that we can make the argument that Mary was the first Christian. After all, by definition, a Christian is someone who believes in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and someone who has a personal encounter with Christ. And at this particular moment, she's the only person in the world who checks both of these boxes. And so it, it, it's so important for us to see that Christ intentionally chose a woman and not a man. That Christ intentionally chose a, a, a sinner with a reputation and not a pillar of the community. That Christ intentionally chose a person that was part of the support team and not one of the leaders to be the first Christian. And this shows us this shows us that our salvation is not based on our talent, our achievements, our pedigree, our reputation, our effort, or our track record. Our salvation is based on grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus didn't come to save us based on our work, but by His work. 
And so when Mary came to a full understanding of of Christ's grace, she immediately trusted in Him as Savior and submitted to Him as Lord, which was important because Christ immediately sent her to proclaim the gospel to the others. Look at verses 17 and 18. Jesus said to her, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So finally, when you're discouraged, refocus on your gospel mission. It's a little bit puzzling that Jesus told Mary, don't cling to me. Because later in this chapter, Jesus will allow Thomas to touch the marks on his hands and the hole in his side. But he tells Mary, don't cling to me. Why does he say this? Well, the key to understanding the first phrase is looking at the next phrase. Christ says, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So Jesus was essentially saying, Mary, you shouldn't cling so tightly because I'm going back to my Father in heaven. And I'm going to ascend to his right hand. And I will send the Holy Spirit. And with the Spirit, you will have my presence and my peace always. In chapter 16, Christ said something similar to the disciples. He said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I Don't go away. The Helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. In several weeks, the Spirit would come. And the church would be born and the gospel would move and go forth from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. But right now, several weeks before that, Christ went ahead and sent the first messenger with the good news of the gospel. He sent Mary to his disciples to tell them, I have seen the Lord. Because of her encounter with Christ, Mary moved from the bottom of the pit to the top of the mountain in the span of a few hours. Jesus radically altered her life. He changed her her broken past, her depressing present, and her uncertain future, and gave her a completely new outlook on life. I have seen the Lord. Church, you're allowed to be frustrated with 2020. You're allowed to be anxious about 2021 and beyond. But if you are in Christ, you shouldn't allow yourself to become too discouraged. Because the tomb is still empty and the throne is still occupied. So as you watch the the coronavirus spread, as you watch the U.S. government 
slip into chaos as you watch the bad news stack up higher and higher and higher. You walk forward with confidence because you know the rest of the story. You know who wins in the end. When you become overwhelmed, you preach the gospel to yourself. When you become discouraged, you echo these words of Mary, I have seen the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we know that that Paul says we should take every thought captive. But that is an extremely difficult task for us. Because there are so many things around us that, that fill our hearts with, with fear and anxiety and worry. There's so many things happening around us that, that, that lead us to discouragement. And so, Father, I, I pray this morning that you would set our feet back on the solid foundation of the gospel. That we could be confident in an empty tomb and an occupied throne. Father, help us to to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. Help us to be reminded that when the world seems out of control, Christ is still in control. We thank you for these truths. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the gospel. And we thank you for the mission. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.